die Bitcoin-Bibliothek. Der Bitcoin-Lese-Podcast. This is a special day. Brandon Quittem, the author of the four-part Bitcoin is the Mycelium of Money series, visits us here at the Bitcoin Bibliothek today. You know what? I will wear my orange tie for once on this special occasion. And a freshly ironed shirt. This is appropriate. I still have five minutes. That's enough for a cup of tea in peace. Ah, the tea is spilled. What do I do now? Herr Bibliothekar, kommen Sie? Yes, I'm coming. Then I just put on my old sweater and the usual shirt again. It's much more comfortable anyway. Let's go. Brandon, so great to have you as a guest in the Bitcoin Bibliothek podcast. Welcome. Did you have a good trip to us in the library? And how do you like the library? <laughs> I did have a good trip to the library and I'm quite obsessed with books myself. And I would like to have one day a library as immaculate and as diverse as the one we're sitting in now. Uh, but that day <laughs> has not quite come yet. <laughs> Appreciate instead, it. instead i have a closet right over here to my right with totes and totes and totes of books and i don't uh -huh. have bookshelves big enough to fill them so <laughs> all right nice yeah we will talk about books later on i'm really looking forward to discussing the bitcoin is the mycelium of money articles with you but first i would like to ask you the question that i asked toma and volker I'm curious to hear your take on it. What genie did Satoshi Nakamoto let out of the bottle and will the genie ever go back into it? Great question. Um, I'm going to answer this a couple different ways, actually. The first and obvious one is that I believe Bitcoin is the first digital superorganism that lives online. And so I view it as a new form of life, not exactly biological life, but something more like a super organism, right? It sort of blurs the lines between technology and people. So it's kind of this symbiosis between us as individuals and these technological creations and throw a little incentive mechanism bolted on. And all of a sudden you have this, this thing that looks and feels like a digital organism. And so that, that's the first and obvious answer from my point of view. And no, I don't think it's going back in the bottle. I think this thing's going to live forever in some in instance maybe until the heat death of the universe. And another way to look at this is more from an economic standpoint. 
I think that's the the easiest way for people to grasp Bitcoin is is as a, a new type of money. And I think the key innovation here is not uh, a blockchain or you know double spend problem or any of these things. I think the key innovation is actually creating a monetary system that cannot be controlled by humans. So rather than you know you can use Google for example, where Google used to say "Don't be evil." Right as their slogan, mm-hmm. uh, they've since gotten rid of that, probably due to their own shame and guilt of mm-hmm. becoming evil. But neither here nor there. Uh, but what Bitcoin is is can't be evil, right? It cannot be controlled by a, a minority party looking to oppress someone else. And I think that this is a lock and key uh, fit with humans because I think humans are hubristic by nature. And Hayek had the idea of the fatal conceit. Mm-hmm which is the idea that man believes that we're able to shape the world around us according to our wishes. However, that is just simply not true. And our belief that it is true, I think, is what leads us to things like uh, central planning and, and other things like socialism and communism that just simply do not work in, in real life. And so what Bitcoin is, is a monetary system that prevents humans from getting our grubby little paws on it. And that's the key here, because if you look throughout history, monetary systems, um, even with the best of intentions and the best leaders imaginable, they only work for a period of time, let's say 30 years, 50 years, 100 years, before that system starts to decay, whether through humans being fallible and being corrupt and sort of just changing the system to their own liking, or because technology changes underfoot, or because social conditions change, right? Eventually, the, the system fails. And I think what Bitcoin is, is it's a dynamic system that evolves over time. It learns from its mistakes. It learns from its attacks, from its environment. And we're all incentivized as holders of a piece of this network to keep it alive, to improve it. And so I think those are the type of conditions needed to maintain a system for the long haul. Whereas fiat money, yeah, 50 years max. (laughs) So you're saying that Bitcoin is more than money? Did I get that right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like an organism that functions as money, or what is it? Exactly. Yeah, the fact that we can create a limited uh, supply of a unit and the rules cannot change, mm-hmm. and that it's over telecommunication channels, those features make it appear like a good form of money. And I certainly treat it as money in my own life. I think it fits on a macro scale uh, in a digital world as money really well. But I think it's so much more than that. And yeah, that, that's where the, the mycelium money writing came from. And, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, to be fair, I was not the first one to come up with these ideas. Ralph Merkel, one of the fathers of cryptography, Merkel tree, you, you've probably heard of. Mm-hmm. He, he actually wrote an essay about Bitcoin and decentralized autonomous organizations. We call DAOs now, maybe in, I forgot now, maybe 10 years ago or something like that. But his idea was he called Bitcoin the first form of life on the internet. And I think that that's absolutely true. Mm. And ironically, I, I started thinking about mycelium of money before reading any of Ralph's work, later found it. And, you know, as it goes, there's no new ideas under the sun. So <laughs> I thought it was a new idea, but of course not. Mm. Intellectual pioneers came before me to blaze that trail. Let me ask a little question on that, what you just said. What's the difference between an autonomous system and a superorganism? You mentioned these two words in your answers. Yeah, good question. Yeah, I view autonomous in a sense that 
they're quite similar terms, right? I don't know if there's a hard line here, but I view autonomous as something that can persist outside political structures mm-hmm. and outside traditional hierarchies, legal stuff, whatever. And so it can you can swap people in and out and theoretically it lasts forever in cyberspace. Mm-hmm. And the other question there was a super organism, right? So a good example here would be like a colony of ants. Mm-hmm. So you have all these ants and you have the queen and you have all these different specialized worker ants, etc. And the worker ants, they voluntarily sacrifice themselves for the for the colony all the time, right? And that decision to sacrifice themselves is bad for the organism, the individual ant, but it's great for the hive. Mm-hmm. And so you can kind of start to look at ants as a super organism where it's it's not really the ant, it's it's about the the colony of ants. Mm-hmm. Right? That's that's a better way to look at the organism. And so if you bring that to Bitcoin, what do you get? Well, you get each individual user, each individual node, every lightning channel, every miner, every energy producer, every software developer, all those things stitched together actually as a sum, the sum total of all those opinions make up the Bitcoin network. Mm -hmm. And we participate directly. We decide what code we want to run with our node. That node enforces the consensus rules and relays blocks or doesn't relays blocks. Right. And so it's really a super organism of individuals that combine up to this, this big thing. The most famous example in the writing I did was with the slime mold. Mm -hmm. Um, It looks like one organism, like a yellow slime on a tree. (laughs) But when you zoom in all the way, it's actually a symbiosis of multiple different species that work together. And there's a whole bunch of little individual organisms that just form a colony. Although they each act independently, they just prefer to work together. Right, they cooperate voluntarily because it suits them, and I think Bitcoin's the same. We sort of cooperate together because it suits us individually, and it just so happens that that combined power, that combined will and effort, results in something grander than any individual could achieve. And so, Bitcoin lasts forever as long as we humans decide to value it forever. Mm-hmm. And I think, from a monetary standpoint, there's really not much room for improvement on Bitcoin as a deflationary hard money asset. It doesn't really get any better. So I think there's room for other types of monetary assets in the world. I don't believe in a Bitcoin's the only value, monetary value ever type thesis, but it it suits that hard money deflationary asset as good as anything. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think we will as as individuals want to maintain this thing forever, which is why I give its lifespan such a, a long horizon. Yeah, interesting. Maybe one comment. It suits us in a way that it gives us, as individuals, it gives us a lot of freedom, monetary freedom, to really possess something with a lot of freedom. But it takes away the freedom of the individual to change it, to change the organism. It's kind of paradox, isn't it? Yeah, I agree with that, right? If you opt into the Bitcoin system, you fully submit that these are the rules that I abide by and I accept the fact that I cannot change them. I think what's interesting here is I'm going to steal a Jocko Willink quote, which is discipline equals freedom, Mm -hmm. right? So having the capacity to change the system requires discipline to not change the system, right? However, in this situation, you can't change it. So that's totally out of your mind. You don't have to even, uh, how can I describe this better? As a powerful person, you want to bend the rules of the monetary system or politics to your own will. 
And that's why all the powerful people converge on the money printer um, as an idea, because it's so powerful. And in a world where it's possible to change the monetary system, people will always do so. And then that wastes all this political energy, all this jockeying, push there, pull there. It's so wasteful and it doesn't help the individual. But if it cannot be changed, you just get that out of your head. There's no temptation to change the money. And so instead, your only option is to produce and to be productive Yeah. and take it full circle. Does it limit individuals? In a way, yes, but it's voluntary. I think that's the key choice. As an individual, you say, do I like the rules of the Bitcoin system? If yes, then I can adopt it. If I don't like the rules, no problem. You can go make your own. You can go pursue a different system. And so I think that voluntary aspect combined with submission, I think that's the magic. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's amazing. It keeps being amazing. Coming back to my questions, can you tell us a little bit about your background story? Just to step one step back, what were you doing before you came across Bitcoin and what made you fall into the Bitcoin rabbit hole? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up as a lifelong entrepreneur. I think that's sort of an important part of the story. So I'm seven years old. I'm running a soda pop empire, selling soda <laughs> to all the nearby construction sites, hiring the local kids. You know, we've got walkie talkies and wagons and we're flying around. Then I built a pond and I stocked it with fish and I tried to sell the fish. Horrible business. So anyways, <laughs> that's kind of in my DNA to solve problems and, and build things. Mm -hmm. My first job out of college, in college, I ran the school newspaper. Out of college, I spent four years at Oracle selling enterprise software. So sort of like a corporate sales route, which, you know, made sense at the time. I thought my life was leading to that moment. After getting in there, feeling all the success I hoped I wanted, I sort of felt empty on the inside. On the outside, everything looked good. But on the inside, I was like, there's no way I can do this for the rest of my life. There's no purpose here. So I went through a yoga teacher training. Uh, this was in like 2012 or something like that. All right. And I sort of had a juxtaposition of an alternative lifestyle compared to the corporate one. You know, you have happy people with very little material possessions on one side, and then you have deeply unhappy people with lots of material possessions on the other side. And sort of seeing both of those and being able to thrive in both worlds gave me the confidence to step out of my path and start to reimagine what do I want in life. So at that time, I also got into psychedelic mushrooms. I started reading about online business like Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, things like that, and sort of started to think, you know, tabula rasa, what do I want for the rest of my life? It ended up being build an online business and travel the world. So in 2014, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, we bought one-way tickets to India and just traveled and built businesses online from 2014 up until I bumped into Bitcoin in 2017. Mm -hmm. And it was like midway through 2017, I bumped into Bitcoin. I was ready to sort of be done traveling, be done with the online business world and bumped into Bitcoin and realized that, okay, this is huge. It aligns with my personal values of individual freedom mm -hmm. and sort of being like future oriented, but respecting the fact that we need to make improvements. So kind of look back to look forward type idea. And that was 2017, traded all the shit coins, thought I was a genius. Then in 2018, I realized I'm in fact not a genius and <laughs> had some gaps in my economic understanding. So I just started reading every book I could get my hands on and shifted all my attention to this Bitcoin space. You know, I started writing, I started doing 
some consulting, pretty much doing whatever I could to transition into this industry. Yeah. Then I also, in 2018 is actually when I wrote the Mycelium of Money part one. Mm -hmm. So originally it was just one essay. Later, I found out that I had a lot more ideas on the topic. But to be honest, I did not think it was going to be so popular. At the time, most of the content was about Bitcoin as money or through technology lens or politics or something like that. And I'm over here saying, well, Bitcoin's a living organism. <laughs> to my dismay, it, it was popular at the time. And yeah, that, that actually opened my eyes to the Bitcoin community as something so much more interesting, so much deeper, and people coming from all different walks of life. And that really enriched my life at the time, to be honest. And it cemented the fact that these are my people. And I consider myself someone on the vanguard of culture and society where, yeah, I can dip my toes into mainstream culture, but generally speaking, it doesn't suit me. And so I'm always surfing down weird rabbit holes and trying on little subcultures and mm -hmm. I kind of like looking for artifacts at the edge of society and, and surfacing the ones that I think are the most potent for our time period. And I think Bitcoin is the, the perfect instantiation of that type of ethos, right? It's still on the fringe of society. And eventually, if we're right about Bitcoin, it's going to be boring. It's going to be money and we'll probably move on to more interesting things. But at this point, it's by far the most important part of culture and society today. And I think it solves our hardest problems. And so, yeah, from, from day one, I was completely obsessed and I've been obsessed at pretty much every day since. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel it. Speaking of the Bitcoin mycelium analogy seems to resonate a lot in the German speaking Bitcoin community right now. Mushrooms are all over Bitcoin Twitter and all over the Telegram groups. I think we have to thank you for that. So thank you. <laughs> On top of that, it's mushroom season here. So when I'm walking through the forest and I'm living right next to the forest, there's ah, mushrooms everywhere. And to be honest, I haven't seen them that much as this year, I guess because of that bias now. So where does your specific expertise in the field of mycelium come from? You just mentioned it, but you have quite some deep understanding. Where does it come from? Yeah, good question. So first, uh, it pleases me to no end that I see Bitcoiners talking about mushrooms and, you know, how many people have messaged me about the psychedelic mushrooms or, hey, I found this in my backyard. Can I eat this? Or, hey, <laughs> did you see this new scientific paper? Right. And so now all the, the, the mushroom information is coming inbound to me which is super cool. And it's honestly a secret mission of mine. It's not so secret, but a mission of mine is to mushroom pill all the Bitcoiners. I believe fungi as a category are similarly disruptive to our society as Bitcoin. And fungi are sort of the forgotten kingdom. They, they don't really get much love, although they're making a huge comeback now. But they're equally understudied and have equal as much potential as Bitcoin from an ecology standpoint, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, as we look to colonizing space, we're going to be using mushrooms. They're useful for producing all of our drugs. They're useful for food and supplements that we can learn from how they survive in harsh conditions. Their architecture is similar to an underground internet, a wood wide web, mm -hmm. right? The way that they cooperate with trees and trade resources. There's a literal fungal economy under your feet right now and pretty much everywhere on the planet trading resources. And we're just starting to learn about it. And so similar eureka moment bumping into mushrooms. 
where does my experience come from? So first off, I'm an amateur, right? In the truest sense, I have no formal training in fungi. It's all self-taught. And it started in 2010, 2011, when I first uh, experimented with psilocybin containing mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be a worthwhile uh, endeavor. And I've continued experimenting with those for, you know, over a decade now and Mm -hmm. positively for my life. And it started there and foraging came quickly next. So I'm looking for gourmet mushrooms in the woods. Um, Then you pick up a field guide and you start learning and hunting for mushrooms is an adrenaline rush, which sounds crazy, but you're in the woods looking for treasure and you pop around one Mm -hmm. tree and you find this amazing thing you've never seen. (laughs) <laughs> and so it went from, yeah, psilocybin to foraging. And I love hiking and being outside to gourmet mushrooms and cooking. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading about the ecology with guys like Paul Stamets and, and many others. And so now it's a whole encompassing thing. And in 2018, when I'm finally starting to understand Bitcoin on a deeper level, overlaying mycelium and fungi in general with Bitcoin, the fact that those two could overlap really shook me to my core. And it, what, it, what it really left an impression on for me personally is the fact that biology makes experiments. It makes accidents, right? The genetic code screws up and it turns a polar bear from brown to white, okay? Mm-hmm. If you live in the forest in Germany, a white polar bear is dead meat. It's too easy to spot. But if you live in the mm-hmm. Arctic, a white polar bear has an advantage, right? So a mistake creates a white bear, the white bear outcompetes the brown bear in its habitat, and now all of a sudden the white bear is its own species. And I think when you look at the evolutionary strategies that we see today, like a white bear or like many other different species, the fact that they're around today and they outcompete their competitors means that they have an evolutionary strategy that's effective. Mm-hmm. Okay. So any strategy we see around today means that they survived hundreds or millions or billions of years of the evolutionary crucible. And so when you start to overlay the mycelial architect, which is this network intelligence, the the mushroom itself that we think about, the fruiting body that lives above ground, that's just like the apple on a tree. That's the fruit. The real organism lives underground and it's a one cell walled mycelial network. You can just think of it like a root system. Mm-hmm. And it's a series of hollow tubes and elevators and pumps and all this industrial engineering that ships molecules around, it ships water around, it trades with other organisms, etc. And that network archetype is decentralized. You could cut it in half and it moves on, right? There's no central processing unit, none of these things. And so it's very similar to our internet. And once I realized that, I said, okay, Bitcoin is actually like the mycelial network intelligence archetype. And that led me to believe that, okay, this is a deeply intelligent design. And if it mimics something that's in biology and the network intelligence of mycelium is the most successful archetype in nature, it's for billions of years. And if that's true, then I think we have a strong hunch that Bitcoin is going to be around for a long time because it mimics such an effective strategy in nature. Mm -hmm. And that was a a huge light bulb moment for me. And there's no way I could leave the Bitcoin space at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. There was something that you were writing that resonated with me quite a bit. It's in the foreword to the Mycelium series. You mentioned the following. I read it out again. Polymathic responsibility. Just as Satoshi combined separate disciplines to stitch together a Franken technology we call Bitcoin, 
It is my belief that each of us has the responsibility to explore our unique cross-sections of knowledge. Here's my exploration of fungi and Bitcoin. The parallels are astounding. So my question is, how did you get to that polymathic responsibility conclusion? And did you have something like an urgent need to write about Bitcoin? You kind of answered that before, but maybe you can dig into it a bit. Yeah, definitely. What's interesting, that polymathic responsibility, I just made that up. That's not a real phrase prior to this. And it was at the end of the essay, I did feel like it was my duty in some way to write about this. And the reason is there's very few people on the planet that have an overlapping interest and expertise on both fungi and Bitcoin. And so when I thought about it, and this was back in 2018, I was like, there's probably zero people on the planet who could write this. Let's just say less than 100 people on the planet that probably had the overlapping interests. And so then I realized, wow, if I didn't write this, it probably wouldn't be an idea in our world. And that would be a shame. Right. Then you think about guys like Bach. What if the piano was not invented before Bach was born? Or what if like foundational mathematics hadn't been invented before our, our favorite mathematicians came around or, or something like that? And so it kind of felt like a duty or a responsibility to our species. And from the polymathic uh, side of the responsibility, uh, meaning multiple subjects, multiple ideas, I think we're in a world right now where we have an abundance of specialists and we do not have enough generalists. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about science, for example, I think about it like these radial arms coming off the center of our, of our society. And in order to be up to date, let's say in molecular biology, you might have to spend 20 years just catching up and understanding the molecular biological field before you arrived. Now you're 20 years in and you're trying to make new advances in that field. And the, the shame is that in the process, you didn't learn about biochemistry, you didn't learn about ecology, you didn't learn about physics. And so you're, you're really just tunnel vision. And the magic right now, I believe, is the synthesis of multiple fields of study. And all of our specialists, all our PhDs, they're not capable of doing this. And so it actually takes an excited, obsessed amateur to read between the lines and make the connections between the two things. And so that's where the polymathic part comes from. And so I think Bitcoiners are uniquely polymathic for whatever reason. We have this innate desire to go broad. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a helpful intuition to approach problems from multiple angles in order to understand Bitcoin, right? So the PhD economists, they're the last ones to understand Bitcoin because they have this narrow lens yeah. uh, on what money or economic systems should be about. And so... Yeah, that's what I think about that. And I think more people should explore their hunches. They should explore the, the space between the subjects. And don't be shy, right? Like mycologists, ecologists, etc. they would probably laugh at some of my ideas because I take so many liberties outside of their field. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's the important part to get ideas out there is, is to make ideas relatable and package them up in stories and... Yeah, I guess that's just how I approach the world. It's, it's slightly imprecise, but I like to make you think and, and wrestle with the big ideas. Mm. I think it's also in the nature of Bitcoin being polymathic or being interdisciplinary. When you hear programmers talking about Satoshi's programming skills, I'm not a programmer at all, but what I hear is that they say he wasn't a good programmer at all. 
But in the end, he connected different fields and different puzzle pieces in a way that created something very, very big. And that was independent of his programming skills. Someone else fixed it afterwards for him. This kind of resonated with me with this wording here, polymathic responsibility. And I think it's really deep in the nature of Bitcoin, this, this word, polymathic responsibility. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Satoshi did that, right? He's a bad coder. He, you know, he's okay at everything. And he didn't really invent anything. He, he just had the, the foresight and the, the wisdom to connect systems that more or less already existed. And he had the wisdom to see how that would fit in with our modern system. And the wisdom that trust was the missing link, right? So I, I would consider him wise, but an amateur in every field. Like, how cool is that? How empowering is that to individuals around the world that you don't have to spend 20 years to get three letters after your name? Right? You can pursue your passions with gusto and magic can happen. You can change the world without being an expert. Mm -hmm. And there's also a different aspect to it, which you also mentioned is the desire to connect things once you understood Bitcoin, the desire to connect it to your specific field of expertise, to your experiences that you've made in your life, in your academic career or wherever. And therefore, I asked this question. Did you feel a need or like an urgent need to write about Bitcoin after you come to that polymathic conclusion thing? The answer is yes. And I'm trying to untangle why, because part of Bitcoin is you become an evangelist, right? On your Bitcoin journey, you discover this thing and you're like, wow, this could change the world. Nobody knows about it. I need to tell all my friends we're saved, right? It's like this religious <laughs> preacher evangelist instinct. And the, the funny thing about that is, as you go and proselytize the good word of our Lord and Savior, Satoshi, what happens? <laughs> the people around you, they think you're crazy. Yes. Right? We all have this uh, bullshit detector inside where we're like, whoa, 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 you're trying to scam me. Right? And so it doesn't work. And then you go, well, shit, now what? And you learn to, to shill lightly, as Matt O'Dell would say. Mm -hmm. I started writing very much When I hit my, my evangelist peak, and that's when I wanted to start sharing this thing. So that's part of it. I was compelled because I thought I had discovered a secret. Another part is that the polymathic responsibility, no one else would have wrote that essay. And so once I started seeing the parallels, I realized that, yes, I absolutely must publish this. Another reason why I like writing in the space is... And this is a, a less flattering reason, but the reason is that I look up to many people in the Bitcoin space as thinkers. Mm. And so there's this sort of fraternity of minds and explorers and revolutionaries that I really respect. And so I would be lying if I didn't say that part of the reason why I write and is I write for Bitcoiners because I want acceptance and I want approval mm -hmm. and I want to contribute to this group that I respect. Mm. And some people would say that that's a bad thing. Um, I disagree. I think having using social pressure to steer our behavior as, as individuals is really smart. And I think we should lean into the fact that our biology inherently says we want respect from our peers. We want that, mm -hmm. that feeling of belonging. And so rather than call it a negative, let's lean into it. Let's embrace it because it helps me produce work. Mm -hmm. So I view the intellectual side of Bitcoin as like a fraternity or a brotherhood 
of people pushing each other and demanding the best from each other. And the benefit is we all get to read this incredible content and listen to this incredible content. And so we all win in that situation. Mm -hmm. And to your other point about Bitcoin, we all try to jam our ideas into Bitcoin. I think it's a really funny one and we should tease ourselves for that, right? Like, I think Alan Farrington edited one of my last essays and he had this tongue in cheek comment when he was editing saying like, I think this is one of my favorite essays about Bitcoin is a ram Bitcoin into my favorite subject category of essays. (laughs) Uh, Because you can look it out there. There's a lot of think boy pieces like Bitcoin is mycelium. Bitcoin is, you know, whatever. It's whatever you want it to be. But I think what's interesting about that is Bitcoin is so multifaceted. And it's so hard to compare to other things that what you bring to the equation taints your perspective of Bitcoin so much. Mm. So I have a mycology background, so I call it a mushroom, right? Someone else views it from an economic standpoint, so it's that. And I think that that's really interesting. Like, why does why does it shapeshift? Why is it so many things? Um, I think that's just an interesting question. Mm. Like, it's so multifaceted. Well, the Bitcoin Bibliothek podcast is about reading all these articles and all these pieces. And a question that came to my mind is, why are so many people so motivated, so enthusiastic writing about this thing in all kinds of different shades? And my take on it is that there is no one telling you what Bitcoin is. Well, obviously, it's code. It's a network. But it is more, as you just described in your article. Satoshi gave us this gift and we have to find out what it actually is. He said, yeah, electronic cash, a peer-to-peer electronic cash. That's nice, okay. But it's more. There's more to it. It's a superorganism, as you just said in the beginning. And um, But how to describe a superorganism? Yeah, really well said. Maybe, is it something like that? <laughs> Maybe? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Partially, he he... How can I say this? He didn't define it fully. So that blank space gave us the opportunity to fill it in, right? Which is kind of what you're saying there. I totally Mm -hmm. agree with that. If it was entirely well-defined, no room for thought, I don't think it would be as attractive to people. Yeah. But I think the other reason why people are compelled is because the mission matters. Separating money from state is a morally just cause. And I think once people, once you view Bitcoin properly through that lens, you do feel like you want to contribute because it's something bigger than yourself. And I think back to biology, one idea I'm always wrestling with is the fact that biology is truth. Biology is gravity. We shouldn't fight our biology, right? So as humans, Mm -hmm. we have instincts, we have hopes, we have desires. And if you stray away from your biological needs, you pay the price, And so I think the fact that Bitcoin is this large idea satisfies a biological need within us. It serves the purpose of meaning and something grand. It gets us out of ourself, which is when humans are their best. In the past, that might have been tribe or religion or um, some other big idea. Mm -hmm. But in modern society, we have a real crisis of meaning. Mm -hmm. We we don't have a purpose. We're not living in tribes. We're, We're neurotic, overweight, depressed, sad pale, sick, <laughs> right? All these incredible things. Although we're surrounded by the most abundance in human history, yes. we're neglecting our meat suit. 
And that's insane. And it comes at a cost. And so that's the soup that Bitcoin's swimming in. A bunch of nihilists with no hope, no purpose, no future. And then you see this bright orange burning mass of, of <laughs> optimism mm -hmm. and, and it gives you something to fight for. It gives you something to be excited about. Mm -hmm. And I'm speaking from my own experience here and many other Bitcoiners have said this, but it's a, it's a North star. It's a way to orient life in a way that you believe will produce a, a better future. And that's important for humans, right? That makes the wake up early and do all the hard work worth it. That makes the, the hard times uh, worth it. Mm. That kind of leads me to a question that's being discussed in the German-speaking space for ah, over a year now, quite intensively. Is Bitcoin a religion? Is it a cult? Is it a tribe? What is it? What's your take on it? Yeah, the, the problem with this question is that religion, cult, and tribe have all these connotations. Mm -hmm. And so the language starts to get people tricked here. I made many parallels to religion in part two of the Mycelium of Money series, and I'm viewing this as a positive thing, mm -hmm. right? So the first framing is people will on Twitter, they'll say, like in a typical investor type will be like, oh, why are you guys so emotional? It's just an investment, <laughs> okay? That's a common trope from finance. And they're just super duper wrong. Um, it's mm. very clearly not just a, uh, <laughs> an investment. And mm. you, should, you should be curious What I would say to those people is you should be curious and you should investigate why does it draw out this crazy evangelism behavior. And then the next question is, well, the mission is to separate money from the state. So you're trying to take away the most important technology away from the most important people in the world. And you think that that's going to be easy? No, it's <laughs> going to be hard. And so the fact that Bitcoin inspires this religious impulse means that there's a much better chance that we're going to be able to make this thing work, Yeah. right? If people didn't really care, like pick altcoin number 72, right? Even if it pumps during the bull market, as soon as the price goes down, everyone's gone. Everyone removes it from their Twitter profile. They pretend it never existed. That's not going to do it. You need diehards who are willing to sacrifice and work hard to make this thing happen. Mm. And so I think in the ways that it is religious, it's a positive. Now, there are also some negative aspects of religion, like dogma and groupthink and shunning the non-believers and in-group, out-group, those type of impulses. And some of that's bad where, you know, if you don't submit to the doctrine, then, you know, you're kicked out of the church in, in a sense, right? If you don't, mm. if you own an altcoin, you're kicked out of the church. And some of those things are like a defensive posture and they actually maintain social cohesion, but some of that goes too far and it's a negative. And so I think the short answer is it's the, it's religion in a good, in a good way, but it's our duty to ma make sure that it doesn't become dogmatic. And it's not a religion in the sense that you have eternal life or something like that. But I would also say capitalism is a religion. I would say liberalism You know, the last 500 years of independent thought is a religion. I would say postmodernism and big environment, ESG is a religion. And so I think back to the meaning crisis we mentioned earlier, the fact that we don't have uh, religious people today, by and large, means that we're going to find our, scratch our religious impulse somewhere else. So we push it to capitalism or country or state or liberalism or whatever. 
And so, yeah, we sort of have that God-shaped hole in our heart, and it just so happens that Bitcoin satisfies that urge. Yeah. Knut Svonholm will probably not like that answer, but that's what I think. <laughs> it's also important to point out that you can, at whatever point you want, you can leave or rejoin the network. On one hand, it's important to have this religious momentum or this... Um, ah, I wouldn't say dogma. Well, you need it in order to push this thing forward. But on the other hand, it's absolute freedom. You can do whatever you like. You can join and leave and be back tomorrow and yeah, be part of it. It doesn't really matter. So it's also a paradox again. You decided to divide the article series into four chapters. Why did you choose these chapters thematically? I will just read them out again. Chapter one is Bitcoin is a decentralized organism, mycelium. Chapter two is Bitcoin is a social creature, mushroom. Chapter three is Bitcoin is the antivirus to macro uncertainty, medicine. And chapter four is Bitcoin is a catalyst for human evolution. How did you get to these chapters? Yeah, so... <laughs> Partially, here's a, here's a non-sexy answer. I wrote the first one, Bitcoin is a decentralized organism, mycelium. So I sort of had the format mm -hmm. for the first one. And then I realized I had more to say. And I said, well, should I keep that same formatting? Okay, I guess I have to. And so I just sort of rammed that templated title into the content. So that's the unsexy answer. <laughs> um, the slightly more fun way to look at this is that I, I tried to pick apart interesting parts of fungi to describe them. So the first one, decentralized organism, that's like the high level. It's like, what is the, the, the high level thesis of this comparison? The social creature or a mushroom, uh, right? That's the fruiting body of the mycelial network. And so that's about how do humans interact with it? What is it representing culture? Is it a religion? What is our role in this thing, which is kind of like the mushroom. That's the reproductive organ of the species. And humans are the reproductive organs of Bitcoin, right? It's our duty to evangelize and move our economic energy into this thing. So that was that one. The third chapter, that's about the big picture. And that's, that's sort of setting us in context financially, where we're at the end of a financial crisis and the old systems are crumbling. There's no trust in the institutions. And so we kind of need this antivirus to the woes of society. And most of our medicine today still comes from fungi. And so medicine kind of felt right there. And then the last chapter, which you said you're going to publish soon on your channel, that's all about the big picture of long-term. And it's like, okay, if Bitcoin is the thing we think it is, what does that mean? Where does that take us long-term? And that's also about cooperation with humans, but yeah, it, it's really about like, where, where does it fit in to our future as a species? Mm. Um, it's the outlook. Yeah, so that's to say. how I think about those. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Great. You published the article series in January, 2020. Have things happened in the past two years or have you come to insights that you would add to the articles now? Have things changed since then? Oh, good question. 
Yeah. So just for the dates really quick, the first one I published in 2018 and then chapter two, three, and four, I just slowly published as I figured them out. And I think what happened in January, 2020 was I put them all into one big article at brandingquidum.com. Otherwise they were scattered on medium and such, but I think things have changed. And how I would answer this question is that I am anticipating writing a book about Bitcoin and I haven't gotten to it yet, but the, the reality is I have a ton of unfinished, unpublished drafts comparing Bitcoin to biology. And so I have a ton of fun things, but none of them are released. I'll talk about one here really quick because it's the one that I've done the most thinking on. And the, the working title is What Bitcoin Wants. Okay. And the idea here is that technology... People always say technology is neutral, right? You can take a knife and you can stab someone or you can cut an apple, right? So all technology must be inherently neutral. And I don't agree with that at all. I think all technology has a bias or a bent, or you could say it has a potential for abuse or a potential for benefit. Mm -hmm. And those trade-offs are all different for each technology. And so I'm trying to explore what does Bitcoin want? What are the inherent biases in the Bitcoin system compared to, let's say, a central bank digital currency? Is that neutral? Right. Just look at the potential for abuse. Central bank digital currency, all data vacuumed up by a centralized party. They have ultimate control. They're essentially going God mode over the monetary system, which is God mode over speech. That's God mode over movement. Mm. So a lot of power is consolidated. Um, I would say the potential for abuse very high. Okay, now let's compare it to Bitcoin. Well, it's decentralized. No one can change the rules. If you want to print more money, you got to do work for it. No one can tell you you can or cannot use it, right? So the potential for abuse very low, potential for, for gain very high. And so obviously they don't have the same neutrality. And so what Bitcoin wants is really exploring that. It's things like Bitcoin wants everything to be fair, right? Bitcoin wants humans to have unlimited energy at low cost. How does it want that? By incentivizing you to go monetize energy assets, right? So it's kind of the inherent bias built into the system. And then uh, sort of a sub essay to that where I write in first, first person, pretending I am the Bitcoin network. That's a nice idea. My hope is to publish them as individual articles over time and then consolidate them and eventually turn it into a book. Mm -hmm. But the, the one last thing there is the most recent essay I wrote is about Bitcoin mining. And it's looking at Bitcoin uh, through the lens of ecology as a pioneer species. And so pioneer species are also a type of symbiote, usually like a lichen or something like that. And so that's sort of an extension of the series, but I wanted to keep it separate for now because it's not directly related, but maybe in the book it will be. I'm really looking forward to that. While I read your articles, I would say that a lot of the things around Bitcoin that you described have come to pass. The mycelium has continued to spread. It has fended off attacks. People are building things that continue to drive Bitcoin adoption. And the bear market seems to be producing more hodlers of last resort. That's how you called them. I like that a lot. What is your personal assessment? Where is this all going? Yes, yes, yes. Where is it all going? What I would say is that Bitcoin entered 
stage two, let's say, or it entered puberty maybe in the last couple of years. So I think everything prior to 2020, Bitcoin was an infant growing up in a world around it that was safe and friendly to Bitcoin. We always say Bitcoin is always being attacked or whatever, but the reality was we had loose monetary conditions and Bitcoin was too small to matter. And the, the original or the legacy financial system hadn't really started to break down yet. And so there's no need to concern ourselves with an alternative, right? If you zoom way out, that's the case. Now, post-2020, the financial system is absolutely crumbling mm. and the world is consolidating power and the three-letter agencies are um, starting to rearrange things. And anyone who can is exerting their will on the world. And so I, I view Bitcoin now as a period where it's going to be tested for real. And what's changed, Bitcoin Bitcoin hasn't really changed either in the last 13 years, but mm. the, the soup that it's living in, the context has changed tremendously. And so what does that mean? Where, is it, where are we going from here? I think volatility will stay high. I think, again, it comes back down to what does Bitcoin want? It wants to empower the individual. It wants to empower the people who, who need help. And who needs help right now? People who live in developing countries, small nations who are getting uh, just crushed by the, the Federal Reserve-based uh, petrodollar system, females in Iran, right? All of the, the marginalized groups are the ones who need Bitcoin the most. And so what I see happening is those groups following their self-interest, their self-preservation and adopting Bitcoin. So El Salvador, great example. No one could point to El Salvador on the map. No one heard of Bukele. Now, all of a sudden, tourism's up and they're implementing Bitcoin and they're going to shoot the moon, right? They have nothing to lose. Let's go for it. And so I, I foresee that those type of groups being the next adopters combined with forward-thinking capitalists, right? So I, I do suspect some sovereign wealth fund type folks will be the next big players to move in in the next three to five years. I also think mining is going to play um, the, the first big fight here where we're dealing with an energy crisis. So all of a sudden that stuff matters. And our politicians are saying all this nonsense about energy. And although the reality on the ground is that Bitcoin is net positive for our relationship with energy, which is kind of what the Pioneer Species essay about. And so I foresee a proof of work battle next. I foresee a privacy battle after that. And I think now is the time for Bitcoiners to step up. And mm -hmm. I'm thoroughly optimistic. I think I, I'm proud of what I'm seeing out there. And I think we're going to have to send more people with their ties on to DC and play the political game. Although I personally hate that. I think it's true. We do need to play their game. And so, yeah, I think Bitcoin's as I'm optimistic, as optimistic as ever. And it's a time when we really do need it. And so I suspect by the end of this decade, Bitcoin will be worth 10 trillion or zero. And I'm betting on 10 trillion mm. on its way to 100 trillion. Yeah. It's strange times. It changed so fast. I was thinking about it today. It's, it's crazy. It's such a good feeling to hold your own keys. Absolutely. Yeah, that, it's power. It's, it's power in your hands. And it's, it's also responsibility. Yeah. And I think... Back to the meaning crisis, especially as a man, we really don't take personal responsibility as a culture. And I think the secret to 
being a fulfilled man is taking on as much personal responsibility as you can bear. Mm -hmm. That's our duty. um, And that's what fills our purpose. That actually results in a life that feels well lived. Screwing off and pursuing your own individual pursuits, although I thoroughly enjoy that, I do not think it leads to a fully well-lived life. And so I think more responsibility is better. And I think private keys is the ultimate form of taking responsibility of your wealth. Mm -hmm. And I think that sharpens the mind. I think that that gives confidence in a unique way. It allows you to break away from the social dogma, the social programming that society puts on you because at a moment's notice, you can hit the eject button and leave. And I think just the psychological act of holding private keys shifts something in in people. Not everyone, not all the time, but I think it's along that personal responsibility hierarchy. And I think as a man, we should lean into that. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with that, for sure. Being in the library here, what are your favorite Bitcoin articles or books? Of course, it can also be literature that has nothing to do with Bitcoin. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my goodness. There is so much good Bitcoin content. (laughs) I'm going to pick out a couple that I don't think are as well known today, but I think deserve it. The first one is by Gwern and that's Bitcoin is worse is better. Mm -hmm. I think it's from 2011. Yeah, it's very old, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's a top 10 article written of all time. And it gets to a lot of counterintuitive truths. The second one I would recommend is Bitcoin is a decentralized clock. Okay. And this was, again, written maybe 10 years ago. And people have probably heard of Gigi's article, Bitcoin is Time. Mm-hmm. And Gigi essentially modernized Bitcoin is a decentralized clock and took those ideas a little bit further and repackaged them. Mm-hmm. But I think reading both is worth your time. And the third one I'd recommend is Bitcoin is a, it's, it's S-O-C-I. It's like a autonomous organization or something, a self-sustaining autonomous organization. I don't know. Let me just look it up quick. Bitcoin is a so guy. I will put them all in the show notes. Oh man. Yeah. I'll have to send you that one. Uh, but it's kind of early ideas of looking at Bitcoin as a as a decentralized organism without really using it, those framing, but more or less looking at it as an autonomous, persistent thing, which I think is really cool. What else? I think the book, The Sovereign Individual, does a good job of framing up um, mm-hmm. how technology shapes culture. Um, I think that's really powerful. The complete opposite thesis of that is that the, the fourth turning. Mm-hmm which I also wrote an essay about Bitcoin and the rhythms of history. Um, but that's essentially looking at culture and how the emergent culture shifts over time and how that culture actually demands certain types of technologies. And if the culture demands a technology like Bitcoin uh, at this time, then the chances of that technology succeeding are much higher than if we demanded a, a central bank digital currency, for example. Uh, I think those are big... Yeah, I mean, reading about ecology and fungi also always come back to Bitcoin to me, but I'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, that's quite a bit, quite a lot of articles and books. Thanks a lot for that. Yeah, Brenton, thank you so much for visiting us here at the Bitcoin Bibliotheque. Have you been to Germany before? I spent about six hours in the Frankfurt airport. (laughs) 
that's as far <laughs> as I got on the way to India. And I did have a, a proper German Pilsner in the airport just to do my best. I had a breakfast beer in the airport. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I would like to get to Germany. I have many friends there and You're more than welcome. Let me know once you get to Germany. We have a very strongly growing Bitcoin-only community, a lot of meetups. I think by now in the German-speaking areas, we had, what was it, two months ago, we had over 60 meetups in different cities. And it's growing. It's still growing. Wow. The mycelium is growing. Uh, so once you are in Germany, please let us know. Yes. What is the best way for people to follow you and find out about your Bitcoin activities? Yeah, absolutely. So first on the German community, if I remember correctly, you guys still run the most nodes out of any country. All right. Ah, I didn't know. I don't know if that's still true, but you love to see that. The, the industrious German engineers <laughs> putting their, their meat behind the network. You love to see it. Where can you find me? Uh, Twitter's the best. B Quitem, B Q U I T T E M. That's mm -hmm. my handle. And otherwise, you can just Google my name. All my articles are on my website, brandingquitem.com. And I also run communications and marketing at Swan. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you go to swan.com slash Quitem, my last name, uh, you can create a Swan account there and, and you can buy Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And if you create a Swan account, you'll get $10 worth of free Bitcoin. And although we're primarily serving the US, we are available in Europe. I don't know if I'm, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but we're building out better financial rails for our European Bitcoiners. So you can buy with financial services that you're used to rather than more cumbersome ways to fund your account. So look out for some announcements about Europe later this year. All right. Yeah, we are looking forward to it. Definitely. Well, thanks again. Safe travels home from the Bitcoin Bibliothèque. <laughs> It was a great pleasure talking to you. I'm looking forward to your upcoming articles. Thank you, Chris. I very much appreciated the time in the library. And although, uh, to be honest, it reminded me of how many books I've purchased and haven't read yet. So um, <laughs> I better get to work. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. See you, Chris. Feel free to follow the Bitcoin Bibliothek podcast on Twitter under at BTC Bibliothek or under the same handle on Telegram. This is where I post news about upcoming readings. If you think this Bitcoin podcast can help other people understand Bitcoin better, feel free to share it and leave me a positive rating in the podcast app of your choice. This will increase the visibility of the podcast. If you would like to support my work, feel free to send me a lightning donation or a boost via your Podcast 2.0 app. Until next week. Viris in Numeris. Euer Bibliothekar. Die Bitcoin-Bibliothek Der Podcast zur dezentralen Revolution.